This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Energy Sense, a podcast where we discuss topics at the intersection of the energy and financial sectors. I have the pleasure today of co-hosting with the ever-engaging Hill Vaden. Hill, as always, good to hear your voice. Good to hear you and see you, Brian. Thank you. And today we are also very lucky to have Ed Kelly and Michael Stoppard with us. They are two of IHS Markets' esteemed gas experts. And um, we welcome you both to the podcast. I think this is both of your first times with us. Isn't that right, Ed and Michael? First time on the podcast. Great to join you, Brian. Looking forward to it. This is Michael. This is Ed. First time as well. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's going to be an exciting uh, 35 minutes ahead, so let's see where this takes us. Uh, I'm going to dive right in, and it's it's been a pretty interesting, I'd say, six weeks. After a very quiet Q1 and Q2, which, let's be all honest, it was rightfully quiet given all the implications of COVID-19 and the global turmoil that, that came off of that. But over the last few weeks, there's been a string of energy deals announced. And it has me wondering, actually, if any of these are just one-off deals or if we're starting to see some emerging energy investment trends. And of particular note, I think it was interesting that we saw two $10 billion infrastructure deals done in the gas world, uh, one at the end of June and uh, the other one at the beginning of July. And Really, is this a bit of an infrastructure frenzy that's emerging? Is this a trend that we should be watching? Or were these just totally isolated, opportunistic, strategic transactions? If For those of you that maybe didn't catch these transactions, on June 23rd, a consortium comprising Global Infrastructure Partners, Brookfield Asset Management, Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, GIC, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and um, NH Investment and Securities, as well as SNM, I brutalize that, the, uh, which consists of the consortium, they collectively acquired 49% stake in Adnoc gas pipeline assets, which is a newly formed subsidiary in Abu Dhabi's national, of Abu Dhabi's national oil company. So that was one deal. And then just a couple weeks later, on July 5th, Berkshire Hathaway Energy acquired substantially all of Dominion Gas's transmission and storage segment assets here in the U.S. So that deal included actually a cash consideration of approximately $4 billion and the assumption of $5.7 billion of debt. So those are two pretty significant deals, again, amounting to just about $10 billion each. And obviously, there was some regional diversity there, with one being done in the Middle East and the other one in the U.S. Hill, were you as surprised as me to see these two? Two substantial gas infrastructure deals be the first out of the gate post-COVID? Yeah, Brian, I was. You, you and I have spoken a couple times this year about investors' kind of general focus on ESG as a priority and a hesitation by many to increase exposure to fossil fuels or really anything related to fossil fuels. So, so the, these big investments certainly caught me off guard. Now, obviously, anything from Warren Buffett, which is I suppose all of our attention uh, and his track track record as a uh, as a value investor often leaves many thinking. You know, what did I miss when they look at these type of deals in hindsight, and why didn't I think of that? So, you know, as a place to start, uh, Ed. You know, if we, if we look at Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, that they're already you know very well exposed to energy. So, so this is not a new space for Buffett or for Berkshire. 
Um, you know, what would you say in today's environment, whether that be, you know, fossil fuels, politics, whatever, you know, what, what is so attractive about pipelines and, and storage to, to, to leave, for, for him to come come out of the gate with this? This is really his first big deal in, in quite some time, kind of putting the, 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 the oxy financing on, on to the side. Uh, a couple of layers to that, Hill. Thank you. Uh, one is that they are exposed specifically to gas transmission and, and storage in a material way, as Berkshire Hathaway, through the ownership of assets and operation of assets, especially in the Western U.S. This is a familiar space. They've earned solid returns off of this familiar space over time because the regulatory circumstance in the U.S. is fairly favorable. Uh, you don't have to go in for sequential rate cases the way you used to. The scrutiny on rates is a bit less. The ability to hire returns, therefore a bit more, the ability to earn those returns on a steady basis a bit more. Um, secondly, I think he sees legitimately a value migration to existing storage and transmission assets across state lines. You know, given the shot across the bow that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline cancellation was, and for Dominion to do that at the same time that it's disposing of its gas transmission and storage assets, I think speaks to the growing difficulty of building something new in this space. Uh, I think there's a generation left, you know, even in our global energy scenarios, gas still has a role to play in our most environmentally sensitive scenarios. It does not go completely away. Existing assets under a favor favorable regulatory regime in difficult environments to build new assets uh, have the possibility of throwing off favorable returns for many years to come. So do you think the focus kind of as a follow-up to that, you know, that these have been uh, existing, you know, pipelines, is, is that going to be the focus of deals or is there opportunity for investors on greenfield projects, whether that be U.S. or elsewhere? I think greenfield projects that cross state boundaries and are subject to federal regulation on the environmental front are have to be considered increasingly vulnerable. Now, as an investor in such a thing, I think you have to prepare yourself for you know, increasingly intense intervention in your permitting process and just understand that the timing is uncertain, uh, the route, the establishment of a route may be uncertain. So once you cross that state boundary and you're subject to federal regulatory processes, I think there's, there is greater uncertainty. I don't see that going away necessarily anytime soon. Now, within states and in certain circumstances, there are greenfield opportunities. There are probably 15 billion plus or minus investments going on right now within the state of Texas, across the state of Louisiana, you know, from Oklahoma South, getting the gas to the shore. And you know, getting the plentiful gas inland to the shore, a little bit down to Mexico still, uh, obviously supplying LNG facilities. So there exist pockets of opportunity for build still, but cross those state boundaries and you've got uh, significantly more uncertainty. This isn't a new thing. It's been a number of years developing, but the ACP cancellation really woke everyone up to it. I think the degree of uncertainty that does really exist. What about the storage component to this? So, I mean, it's been a long time where storage has 
let's be honest, fallen out of favor because it, since shale gas and the shale gas revolution, we just really haven't really haven't had the spreads uh, to support storage. And so nobody's really been building new storage, but this also had a storage component. Was that just a, a bolt-on because in order to get the deal done, it was just kind of thrown in with the, with the rest of the assets? Or do we think that there's actually going to be a resurgence in some interest in storage given how, um, given the conditions the market's in or where we see the conditions moving? Uh, I've been looking for that resurgence of interest in storage for close to 20 <laughs> years, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like we've been talking about it for 15 years. Yeah. I think so. Uh, that said, it depends on the price. Right. And Buffett is as, as good as anyone in the world at you know discovering that value. These are existing assets. Um, you know, some of them... They're older assets. These are some of the original gas storage assets in the North American grid. So uh, there is an older operational component to the to some of these assets. But nevertheless, it is value over time in what may become a constrained area. Uh, you know, our own outlook is that new pipe out of Appalachia is going to be very difficult to get built. So you've got what may become a constrained producing basin, which probably is subject to greater seasonal variance, therefore, as off-peak there's a surplus, wide differentials to Henry Hub. On peak, uh, less of a surplus or no surplus, narrow differentials to the Henry Hub. So seasonal spreads could be increasing very significantly. We also think there's going to be some catch-up in the overall Henry Hub market uh, over the next couple of years as production declines while you know demand continues to grow over the next couple of years. So we're going to have to see some increase in the Henry Hub price itself. But I think over time, value migrates toward that storage as well. So this is a long-term value play uh, and potentially a shrewd one. So it really sounds, I mean, let's be honest, it sounds like from a pipe situation, it's high utilization is a big part of the um, support to this type of investment theme. And then the potential for a rise in volatility kind of supports the storage narrative that is also added into this deal. When I think about those those two reasonings, I have to assume that it's sort of the same reasoning that was behind the consortium getting involved with the 49% stake in the Adnock gas pipeline assets. Do you think that that's fair, Michael? Or did you see, or do you think that there's other motivations driving that particular deal in the Middle East? Well, it really is striking, isn't it, to be able to uh, raise $10 billion in this difficult environment uh, outside the OECD. I mean, that's the importance of the significance. And then to value those assets at $20 billion for the entire thing, because it was $10 billion for the 49% share. And it shows, first of all, the attraction or the strength of those secure cash flows, uh, what's perceived to be what appears to be a very secure long-term cash flow. And that's attractive. So you've got to congratulate the authorities and their advisors on structuring the deal in such a way that it made sense, made sense both for the financial investors, the financial asset, and also interesting to see one industry player also uh, in the consortium. So making sense both for those with an industrial mindset and with a more pure financial mindset. That was one of the things that interested me on the deal. And I was surprised to see some of the names in the consortium that were there. You know, most, I won't say most, actually, some of which were predominantly always North American focused in any of their energy investments. I mean, the majority of them have had great exposure to energy over the past. So it's not that this was entirely out of 
pocket for them. And some of them obviously were are big players on the infrastructure front, infrastructure investment front. But um, it did seem for, for some of these investors that came in, the regional diversity angle was also very much at play. Were, were you surprised to see some of these actors who aren't necessarily present or, or traditionally present in places I'm, like I'm the Middle sure East? I'm not sure I was surprised. Um, I felt vindicated to see it happen at <laughs> I mean, I feel as if you know, we all know where the investment's going in the future, and we know, you know, the energy needs of the world are increasingly turning away from the OECD and into non-OECD markets. Um, and obviously, some of this institutional finance capital is going to be wary in going to areas of, of high political risk or areas without uh, proper governance or clear regulatory structures. But yes, we will be looking out and sniffing out those opportunities that do exist in the, in the more developed government structure places. And it's a real vote of confidence in the United Arab Emirates and in Abu Dhabi um, that this money felt that this was an attractive risk-reward proposition in place and that the governance was there to a satisfactory degree. And I think uh, we may see more of that, but we don't want to get carried away. I mean, there's always going to be, uh, it's going to be less of a, a community of players who will be prepared to put their money outside North America and outside OECD. It's going to be a smaller community, but I think it's going to be a growing one, I suspect. Well, do because we know those, sorry, go ahead, Hill. Well, do you see that community, I mean, b both of these deals, whether Berkshire or, or some of the uh, kind of the leaders within the consortium are established uh, energy infrastructure investors or, or owners. Um, d does this environment favor that group of investors who already knows the space well, or, or is there an opportunity for people who are perhaps, or, or groups of investors who are new to energy infrastructure to get involved? Well, I don't know what you'd say on that one, Ed, but I would say it very much depends on how you structure the deal. I mean, I think you can structure these deals so that you attract in people who have technical competence, who have a track record, or you, or you, you position it very much as a pure bond plus type of financial transaction. And that's a decision uh, which sellers need to make when they're thinking about unbundling an asset and preparing uh, the tariff structure for, for divestment or sale. No, absolutely. I think that nor the analogy into North America holds that it depends on the structure of the deal. I, I think there are enough assets, the, the universe of variance among the assets is such that there will be those that are suitable for uh, the passive investors seeking a passive return, you know, and a relatively attractive return. And yet there are likely enough for those who do want to own for the long haul and own and operate. But the value difference and the drivers of that value difference can be large from one asset to the next as always. And so it pays to be very intelligent about understanding how that value is moving, uh, whether within the North American grid, through the North American grid, or through the global market. So when we think about, Michael, you mentioned that we could potentially see an increase in this type of investment theme across other regions or emerging regions. Do you want to flag some some potential hotspots or, or areas that you think are a natural fit for at least in the early stages of this trend for some of these investment dollars to flow? Do you think the Middle East can will, will stand out as a place um, 
amongst I think within the Middle this East team. is one of the places that stands out, and certainly we've been active and seen some opportunities across Latin America, uh, where there are certainly opportunities. I guess the market that I've been spending some time looking at and more familiar is looking at the Indian market, where we have seen the initial movements of some entry into that market. We've seen Brookfield Asset Management move into transmission pipelines in India. We've seen I-squared capital take positions in the distribution grids. It's a very interesting move. And of course, India, I mean, inter India interests me because it's got this very aggressive aspiration to raise the role of natural gas in the mix from about 6% today, it was a very low level, up to 15% by 2030. That's very ambitious and they may struggle to, to achieve that goal, but the direction of traffic is clear, um, and they will need, will need capital to get there. And of course, whenever one talks about India, the issue of infrastructure is always brought up. We know the latent demand is there, the issue is affordability, and the issue is infrastructure. And I think the financial institutions can play an important part of the role in, the, in meeting the infrastructure challenge. So globally, do you think it's not as much, you know, here we talked about in the U.S. that existing infrastructure is, is really a focus, but globally is the emphasis not as much on existing? Do you think there could be some, some involvement in Greenfield? Well, of course, there's a much greater need for new investment, but I think, you know, we have to just go back to basics and just remember we must make this distinction between bundled and unbundled infrastructure. And a lot of this financial capital doesn't want to take commodity price risk. Uh, it sees it as a pure infrastructure game, and those opportunities are limited because I guess most pipelines in the world outside of North America and Europe are still primarily on a bundled basis, and so that's going to restrict your opportunity set. Can you expand a bit on the, the bundled versus unbundled in, in terms of, the, you, sure. you mentioned the, the, the price exposure, I guess, within the bundled approach? Um, so, of course, in North America for some decades now, you, you, the player who's owning the pipeline uh, is not the person who owns the gas that's going through the pipeline is selling to the final consumer. That is also the case across uh, Europe and the European Union and the United Kingdom. But in most markets, as it started out in Europe, as it started out, I think, in North America, um, the person who builds the pipeline generally owns the molecules going through it and is making money from the combined operation of transporting the molecules and selling them into the market. And those are two very different businesses, which is why over the years they've been separated. Um, but so long as they're not separated, you're not just in the business of taking a regulated return for transporting molecules, you're also in the business of uh, sourcing gas, selling gas, trying, uh, dealing with commodity price risk and volatility and all that. So it, it expands massively uh, the task that you're taking on and typically would favor an industrial player more than the pure financial. And, and I would point out that there are hybrid circumstances. Uh, I would consider Mexico a hybrid circumstance and they are going through the throes of an unbundling process still after a number of years, simply because Pemex has such a degree of 
you know, really legitimate use of the pipeline infrastructure, but as a result, they have a large degree of market power in certain parts of Mexico, and unpacking that is challenging from a Mexican perspective. In other areas of Mexico where Pemex isn't the only game in town, there's a fair amount of competition and a fair amount of established unbundling that existed to some extent in Monterey, for example, and underway uh, more effectively now. So it's very much a patchwork, even in Mexico, within North America, in that circumstance. So the investment horizon and, and the you know, fundamental nature of an investment in those two environments are very different, as Michael points out. So where has unbundling taken hold? Obviously, North America, we spoke of Mexico, it's taking hold there. Where else? Well, really, wait, I really want to signal you started off with the comments about these two huge uh, pipeline transaction deals of $10 billion. But there's been a third very exciting development just in the last week, which we'd be remiss not to talk about. And that is the creation of a national pipeline company in China. And what is extraordinary about this, the, the pooling of assets between national oil companies to create a company with $70 billion registered, registered capital. Now, I don't think there will be any opportunity anytime soon for uh, foreign money to, to invest in that. I think we're a long way off from an IPO, um, and that will be largely for Chinese investors. But this is a an extraordinary uh, example of unbundling, creating a pipeline that is agnostic in many ways about who's sourcing and who's putting gas through. And it's very exciting from a market perspective, if not from an investment perspective, because uh, there are challenges, but potentially it really brings a whole ecosystem of Chinese buyers into direct contact with the international gas market and the potential to be able to do direct deals through this unbundled pipeline network. Um, so I think that's also another very exciting So it's a first step, we would say, towards... Although the interesting thing is the way things are done in many other markets, particularly in Europe, is it came very late in the regulatory process. Um, it was the last... It was resisted by the incumbents for as much as possible, and therefore the attempt to create an open market with competition was was held back because the company that owned the pipeline always had a vested interest uh, in keeping uh, control of the market. China has cut through that quite early on in the process, and that makes it very interesting. But they still have a lot of detail to work through, that's for sure. I, I would just add a comment or two, if I may, and that, that is that you know, there's a there's an economic fundamental behind this. Uh, the more grids develop, the more markets develop, uh, no matter where you are in the world, the more producers become comfortable with the fact that they can get a fair market value for their product without owning and operating downstream infrastructure. So that process occurs to varying degrees and varying speeds throughout the world is occurring in the LNG space, I would argue, and Michael can certainly uh, opine on, uh, that as the markets develop, as infrastructure develops, then producers' fundamental interests, if they want to remain a producer, uh, begin to diverge from the midstream players and their interest in actually owning and operating midstream assets becomes less and becomes less critical over time. So that opens these assets to the investment community by degrees, you know, in fits and starts. But I would argue there's an economic fundamental behind that that will translate globally over time and at different speeds. Yeah, and I think, you know, other... I think we need to remember here that the oil and gas companies, by and large, um, think of investment in pipelines and in regas. Um, and 
tempted to use the phrase a necessary evil. That's perhaps going a bit far. But for them, it's just a ne something necessary to monetize the reserves, which is their core business. If they can farm it out to somebody else, a lower cap cost of capital, that's very attractive to them. And at a time when they're so conscious of returning cash to shareholders and reducing capex expenditure, it would seem to us that the time is really here now to see if we can free up some capital in that part of the value chain where they don't see that they have a particular competitive advantage or core skills and they don't see it as a core business, but they do see it obviously as a necessary part of monetizing their upstream reserves. So do we so you see people that following China's footsteps and, and is there more unbundling to, to come? Are there other significant areas? Well, you know, this, this tends to take place over years rather than months. I'm aware of the, uh, the, the, pa the patience of people looking for investment opportunities. But I think if we think in terms of years, we absolutely can see a clear trend. Um, and people are looking at what's happening in the world. They've certainly looked at the unbundled experiences of Australia, Europe and North America. North America and to a lesser extent Europe have always been taken as the template to follow or not to follow, as the case may be. And now we're beginning to see other examples around the world, like Abu Dhabi, like Mexico, like China. And other countries are taking note and working out what is the right uh, business model or structure for them. Now, do we think it's gas? Obviously, both of these deals were gas uh, that happened this year. But I, I do want to flag that Adnoc had done a similar deal on its oil pipelines early last year um, with a different consortium, so not with the exact same consortium. With I think there were some crossover in players. But uh, so is this? It's not just gas. Or are we agnostic to to being gas oil? Do we think that gas actually has the better potential to be the investment theme, or do we see as much interest and potential? in oil pipe or oil infrastructure in general. I think many of the drivers are the same. I'm just, I'm smiling here remembering one famous uh, senior gas executive who said, look, it's a hollow cylinder made of metal. Um, so in that case, you know, oil and gas, does it make that much difference from the point of view of the drivers in place? I'm not sure. Not, not fundamentally. I mean, the regulatory structures can be very different. Uh, I think the economic fundamentals and drivers are the same. They want to monetize their product at fair market value, and to the extent the infrastructure exists uh, so that they have confidence in doing that, then they're more willing to let go of control over that infrastructure. <laughs> but the regulatory structures can be very different, uh, and that creates a different um, incentive for participation in that part of the value chain. So, uh, I mean, they tend to maintain oil producers and liquids producers, just sort of the liquids part of the chemical chain, tend to maintain control on a lease basis over that pipeline infrastructure because pipes otherwise in the regulatory system in much of North America would maintain a fair amount of market power over the movement of liquids that isn't necessarily matched on the net gas side. And what about, so just kind of circling back to, we, we talked about the storage and the potential importance of it within the North American space and, and its component in the Berkshire Hathaway deal. But Michael, we know that gas storage it's basically a north america game and a, and a european game at this point is there is there something on the storage side in any of these emerging places or potentially in europe for instance where there could be some appetite from the investor community to get involved in well, storage? well i was amused by ed's comment about storage because in europe we've also been uh, long anticipating and waiting to see uh, the value the value of storage return it, it's been a long wait 
Um, but we continue. I mean, if we look at the market fundamentals, you know, and we're constantly asked, is the market tight, loose or balanced? And as we look at it, you know, there's a strong case to say the market is balanced or tight at winter and loose in summer. And if that doesn't tell you there isn't a potential investment signal for storage, um, uh, there it should be. So there should be some some opportunities there. Why are people so hesitant on the storage front? Because I mean, that's the that's the bottom line. Is you look at you look at the seasonality of natural gas. You look at like you look at the fact that the global natural gas market is growing, but we haven't really grown storage. To me, that's cycling a bigger market through a smaller safety net. Well, the reality is most of the uh, most of the forward price projections I see uh, show significant seasonality, but none of the looking back on history shows the same level of price seasonality. Um, so it's always a hard sell to say something's different this time going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, I, I was just thinking 15 times burned, perhaps 30 times shy <laughs> on, on the value of storage. Uh, also, we've had a huge build out in North America, especially in pipeline infrastructure itself, you know, because to monetize these shale reserves 365 days a year, producers have seen the kind of the scale of the asset that they have in the ground. They've been willing to add pipe to that. Uh, they've overbuilt pipe out of certain areas, uh, arguably speaking. And guess what? Flexibility in the pipeline grid competes with storage. If you have extra pipeline space on a in a daily market, you can get interruptible gas supplies as you need them more reliably than if you don't have extra pipeline space. So there's that competition for storage that is built out as the shale gas has been monetized in North America. Mexico is an interesting storage uh, opportunity, I would argue. Difficult regulatory environment, but basically they are swinging off of U.S. storage now and there's zero storage within Mexico. So at some point there is a policy driver within Mexico to build storage. So at some point I think the Mexican storage will be part of the investment equation. And then, of course, storage ed is a big portmanteau word that actually covers many different different assets that do many different things, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the performance of each storage asset can vary and its uses varies a great deal, obviously, from high deliverability above ground tanks into LNG facilities, I would argue now, are a material and growing part of the U.S. storage grid. Uh, High deliverability salt dome storage to reservoirs that can't do anything but seasonal variants and have some trouble doing that in some cases. So the quality difference, the performance difference is, is very great. As we look at some of the, I guess, some of the timing of these, you know, there's a lot of focus right now on investors looking for yield um, as, you know, traditional yield investments are not generating a lot of yield. Um, How much of this, you know, I think, Michael, you mentioned the cash flow certainty or relative certainty from some of these pipelines. Is a lot of this driven by the backdrop with rates as low as they are globally? Driven by the backdrop of what, sorry? Rates, global rates being as low as they are and or negative, does that make pipelines more attractive than they are in other types of... Yeah, uh, I think the answer to that is clearly yes. But I think there are drivers coming from two directions here. I think that uh, the availability of capital, the the, the low level of rates, uh, make the financial sector have to take this opportunity seriously and look out opportunities. And at the same time, as I mentioned before, the traditional industrial players in the opposite direction have very good reasons to want to exit. So, you know, you have potentially the commonality of interest between the players who own the assets who want to get out and free the capital 
and the financial sector with financial reserves potentially looking for opportunities to enter. You can see the potential deal to be done. The question I come back again is whether we can structure the risk profile correctly um, because energy, of course, is in competition with other asset classes for capital, obviously. And do, but do we see where where do we see the risk in these types of investments? I mean, there's got to, it can't be just guaranteed money, right? There's got otherwise everybody would be doing it. So where does the risk come in? Everybody with both these deals, predictable cash flow was mentioned by every participant um, related to the deal. Is it really as predictable as it said, or are there risks? I think the two main risks are the future of demand, uh, utilization, load. How can you keep that up? Is it realistic? Uh, and the regulatory risk. And just on the regulatory risk, I mean, the classic famous warning example is what happened in Norway when the oil companies sold out, sold out their shares of the offshore pipeline system, arguably the largest offshore pipeline system, single offshore pipeline system in the world. And it was bought up by the usual consortium of sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and private equity. And soon after the acquisition, the regulator and the Norwegian government cut part of the tariffs, uh, which was not foreseen by those buying in. And, and it did go to arbitration and to court. And one, I think read, reading the, the uh, ruling on that court would be recommended reading for many, but the court did decide that the government had every right to change part of the tariffs. And so that's a real indication of regulatory risk. Well, what about, so one of the other uh, kind of pieces of this, I remember years ago Ed, when the Rockies Express Pipeline uh, was, uh, I remember being at a conference where somebody said the Rockies Express Pipeline is the most important U.S. Uh, energy news since the death of the dinosaur. And that pipeline totally five years later, the Marcella Shale comes along. The, 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 all the ideas of investing in the pipeline is originally designed literally backwards. Right? So, so if we're looking at these cash flow certainties, Michael, you mentioned the, the, the regulatory risk. There are governments uh, around the world right now trying to create jobs in, in a post COVID world, and governments love to build infrastructure to create jobs. Is there a, a chance that there is more and more pipeline and, and these and in an energy uh, transition world to these pipeline investments? Is there more risk perhaps that, that people anticipate right now in, in the certainty of these cash flows? I guess we'll start with you and then speak globally with Mike. Well, I think there is. Um, I think, you know, obviously, if you take at face value the goals to go carbon neutral in more and more jurisdictions within North America, there's there's very clearly a demand risk associated associated with transporting fossil fuels of any sort. I think over time, over time being a key metric there. Um, so you have to be careful in terms of the cost structure of the asset you're taking on, where it goes from and to. Uh, is the supply sustainable and competitive? Is the demand sustainable in the collection of markets that are served? And I think you have to be more careful uh, than even in the recent past along those metrics. Absolutely. So if you're speaking longer term, if it's you know, 15 to 30 year money that you're talking about, uh, then absolutely there's a risk. And Michael, you see that risk 
in the U.S. and outside the the U.S. or some of these developing? I would say in Europe, where I'm sitting here in in Europe today in London, and I would say that risk is in spades. Is 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 that risk squared here in Europe, where we have this increasing commitment, more governments month by month committing to net zero. Um, net net zero emissions by 2050, and basically an elimination of fossil fuels from the mix uh, unless they are in um, in combination with CCS. Um, but uh, the question is, what does that mean for the future of pipelines? And there is clearly a growing momentum for saying that pipelines will play a critical role in this energy transition. Um, I mean, they will either be decommissioned or they will be repurposed for the hydrogen economy. Uh, and there's a growing focus on repurposing for hydrogen. So here in Europe, just in the last two months, we've had the German government put out its hydrogen strategy, the Dutch government put out its hydrogen strategy, and now the European Union also publishing its hydrogen strategy. And there's been a real change of mindset over the last three years. I think if three years ago it was all about making the making turning towards a hundred percent wires power future was the vision in many of these policy makers, and it's now I think quite widely accepted that we don't want to be for many many reasons we don't want to be a hundred percent wires. We want a wires and pipes future. If you want fossil fuels out of the mix, that's going to be biogas, renewable gases, or hydrogen. But they still require infrastructure. Is the bottom line on and that? They, I guess. They, and they and they require investment. And what's interesting mm -hmm. is that some of this um, money that entered Europe entered it on the understanding that they'd have a nice cash flow. They didn't need to do anything. Didn't need to inject more money in it. But that it was a sort of dying asset. And then the owners of the operators of the assets went back to the investors and said, "You know what?" You've had the opportunity to keep this asset going much longer and even have potential upside value if you spend money, repurpose the asset, but it will require it will require more capital to do that. That was not the deal in which some of the initial financial investors went in, but it still may be an attractive option for them. Well, Michael, I think that you just might have um, provided Hale and I with another idea or two of things that we can talk about on future podcasts. I like this idea of energy transition, but still emerging themes and infrastructure and investment that come off the back of it. Because, as you said, if Europe doesn't want to be all wire, you know, it's gonna it's gonna require something, and um, obviously that story doesn't just apply to Europe, it applies to many places around the world as they explore the energy transition opportunities and challenges uh, that come ahead. So I guess that's probably as uh, good a place as any to finish off because we can definitely pick that up on a future podcast. I want to thank both of you, Ed and Michael, for joining us. Um, needless to say, it was a engaging conversation and I learned a couple things and it's always good to talk about where the investment trends might be going. So I really appreciate you guys joining us today. Yeah, Absolutely. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about. <laughs> Very good. And um, yeah, for all of you listeners, uh, please watch this space because we'll be back with a scintillant topic soon, I'm sure. And um, with some more of our experts around IHS markets. So please stay tuned. And we look forward to hearing from everybody uh, in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. 
You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.